The Third Man Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Podcast, the Jack White Third Man Records History Program, and we are so thrilled to be joined today by uh, Detroit music legend, I would say, institution, uh, <laughs> legend in his own lunchtime, John Krautner of the band The Go and uh, Solo Material and Conspiracy of Owls and all that stuff. John, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. How are you guys? Oh, we're fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm here. I'm, I'm I, talking to you, which is amazing. So good. Um, I, I got to say, James, I, I think you've looked better. Oh, yeah. No, I've. Uh, Paul, yeah. I'm going to say, I think you've looked worse. Oh, hey. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Really? So we're, we're doing, doing good. good. Uh, and this is what the people wanted when they heard that we were interviewing uh, Mr. Krautner here. Uh, they wanted to hear how me and Paul are doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have John on the show today. We, uh, of course, John's partner in, in crime for many years, Bobby Harlow, has joined us on the podcast in the past once or twice, uh, once under very nice circumstances and once when the world was on fire. Oh, I was going to say under duress. We, yeah, we told under him. Dur- <laughs> <laughs> I recall. 
And uh, and so we're very we consider ourselves very fortunate, very lucky to be able to talk to John Krautner. John, you were one of the first people that I became kind of aware of, like because you know it's no secret James and I got into Detroit music through the music of the White Stripes and Jack and stuff. But mm-hmm. I think there was an interview you did for a special that was sort of spotlighting the White Stripes, and I remember thinking. Who's this fucking rock star? You have <laughs> glasses and the hair and the sideburns. I was like, I gotta talk to this guy. This guy seems like he's been rocking pretty hard for a while. Now. <laughs> and uh, and, and that's, that's what you know. We kind of got into the go over the years, and then got to know, of course, that I would say enormous catalog. There's quite a few albums there, and we also got to know your solo material, which we want to talk about too. Fun with gum. Volume yeah. one, which came out uh, a few years back. So anyway, your reputation precedes you. But, um, but let's thank start, you. Let's start with the in- initiation, the origin story of the Go. Uh, we had started talking about that a little bit before the uh, the old audio was rolling here. But we read that you met Bobby during college, uh, although you had attended high school together, but didn't quite know each other. Yeah, he was a senior when I was a freshman. Okay, I see. Yeah, so you wouldn't have really too many paths there there's a so you were with mark fellas was that rail face wonder wheel <laughs> yeah okay that was that was a little musical project that mark and i and a couple of other people had going which was just a nice thing to get together every weekend and do and cover like devo songs and <sighs> birthday party songs and just we we're just experimenting and just discovering music that's all that band was. But I did buy those letters you can get at the hardware store to put in your mailbox for address. <laughs> I, I bought all the letters to Railface Wonder Wheel, and I put all those on the back of my uh, 84 Cutlass Sierra at the time. Whoa, that's a look. <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't very noticeable because I hadn't realized that you're supposed to place things askew if you want them noticed. <laughs> and uh, I put it, <laughs> I embedded it perfectly in the design aesthetic of the back of the car. So nobody noticed it, but I was happy to have my band name on the back of my new, my first car. <laughs> so yeah. you, most people just, just assumed this was the new brand of Cutlass. This was not the Sierra. This was yeah. the Railface Wonder Wheel. It's out there, but you know, yeah. Detroit's done weirder things. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Are there any recordings of this band uh, out there that can be accessed? Did you guys ever put anything to tape? We did, and it was really only for our own reference because... At that time, there were no dreams. There were no aspirations. It was just Mark's mom coming down with sandwiches for us. And we're playing music. Beautiful. Beautiful. But um, there was, right before I started communicating with Bobby, I had been playing just with this group of friends that we called Real Face Wonder Wheel for like a year, learning how to play guitar that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, what ended up happening was we recorded uh, Hey Bulldog. Doing it again 
this is measured out in miles What makes you think you're something special when you smile? Childlike I had to beat those off of the uh, yellow submarine Yeah, you did For some reason, Bobby heard it uh, We had mutual friends And he heard the way Mark played the drums Like Ringo He heard the way we tried to do our best to sort of arrange the song. And I think that was the end. It sparked his interest in to get to know me and Mark and uh, form a group, or at least start talking about forming a group. It's a bold choice for a cover too, like for a Beatles cover specifically, because there's, yeah. uh, I mean, Hey Bulldog is not the, the number one, <laughs> but it is yeah. definitely no. uh, a, a song that, I mean, the first time I heard it, I went, this is great and amazing and why are people obsessed with like i want to hold your hand when this song exists uh so, <laughs> um because it rocks pretty hard anyway sorry you're also recording that in the mid 90s i would suspect and uh yeah 95 96 but that was a fairly deep cut that must have impressed mr harlow yeah i don't know Wait. if it's on the blue or the red uh compilations either but yeah it's on, so- it's on something it's on something so were they I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so are we. <laughs> so, th- I mean, well, let's talk about records. You know, I mean, obviously, you have a lot of reverence to vinyl, as, as a lot of um, music aficionados do. There's a great interview that you conducted, actually, in the halls of uh, Third Man Casts a few years back, where you talk about this reverence and, and the warmth and the... Um, the interactivity uh, and the experience um, that comes from participating in a vinyl record. When you were growing up, you know, what were some of your favorite records to spin? I mean, you're coming up in the, in the eight, you know, eighties and stuff. So records were kind of on their way out. We see the rise of the CD sort of tail end of the eighties, but can you tell us about your experience with the vinyl growing up? Uh, Yeah, I was very lucky with growing up. Well, I was born in 77. So by 1987, I was 10 years old, old enough to understand what MTV was, old (laughs) enough to understand how cool music is starting to sound. And uh, I was going through my mom's record collection. She had like Grand Funk's Greatest Hits, uh, some KTEL compilations with MC5 Alice Cooper, um, Deep Purple, all the essentials uh, in terms of pop and rock top 40 kind of things yeah and uh it was all there for the taking and i feel like i soaked it up like a sponge i I was really really into music just listening to it um and as i got a little older uh, i had a friend across the street whose stepdad was a retired dj Uh and his house was full of old records and he was blind so they had braille on all of them oh wow <laughs> and so and he was retired he was happy to sit and listen to his radio shows uh but meanwhile all his records are there collecting dust so right. my friends and i are going through them and, you know it's it was just like i lived in a city where there was bright record stores where more than a few of them were just biking distance away. Right. And uh, at that time, cassettes were having their moment. 
they're, they're very <laughs> brief, yeah. forgettable yeah. moment. Yeah, it's actually, the singles were having their moment. Oh my <laughs> god, did I have a single or two? I have yeah. a crowded house single somewhere. Uh, can can you can I the dad and me just say that what is a uh, a braille coded record other than uh, a braille faced wonder wheel? Wow, wow, <laughs> wow! I did it. I did it. James, I'm coming in. But the morning zoo is here. <laughs> the rail face part of the Wonder Wheel is from the toy in the movie with Richard Pryor. And the rail face oh, part right. is a reference to like a garbage pail kid that we like. She had like, she was like, she looked like a cabbage patch doll, but she had like a train tracks all over, or tire tracks on her. It was weird. <laughs> I don't know what we were thinking. <laughs> I think Bobby knew part of that. I think we asked Bobby about that, and he's like, I do not take credit for any of that. I was like, well, and he said, I think it has something to do with Richard Pryor. So anyway, yeah, that's the, I guess we didn't know the garbage pail side of things. Well, uh, with with records floating around like like that, uh, I mean, we know that Sub Pop, you know, signed you guys as the go. I know we're kind of jumping into the go here, but we've heard that Sub Pop produced a fair, fairly small amount of vinyl pressings for, for what you're doing. Do you still own any copies on vinyl of that original release? Yeah, I got my own copy, and I've got a one I gave my mom that I autographed uh, <laughs> for her personally, and said, "Mom, watch my bike while I'm on tour. Make sure nobody steals it." <laughs> <laughs> much it was going for on ebay and she uh <laughs> yeah. and she sold your bike and yeah, the record yeah. oh no i was up there not too long ago cleaning out her closet and looking through all the old stuff and it's there with all the other stuff i gave her it's just in a corner in a box <laughs> amazing. amazing we were so happy that the record was you know put to vinyl again recently we'll, we'll get to that um vault release but we were so happy that it got put to vinyl again because i you know james and i wanted a copy for a long time but we that was a prohibitive price point issue oh my gosh yeah that's crazy yeah yeah you had quite a following in detroit at that time i mean can you tell us a little bit about you know where the go sat in the context of the broader detroit scene like we've always heard hey you guys were the band to watch you know if people knew you know if the go was playing that these guys they're they're the ones where where did you find yourself, just from your own perspective, in the context of the other bands in Detroit? You know, were you all friendly together? Were you all talking behind the scenes? Was there bands that really impressed you that were you're like, hey, I'd really rather sound like them? Or like, what was that whole environment like? It was amazing. I could not picture myself walking into such a scene, even a year or two prior to 1999, or I'm sorry, 1997 is uh, when we started playing kind of proper shows in Detroit, Mm -hmm. getting our... So, (laughs) just to sum up very quickly, formed a band in 96, 
started playing in 97, got signed in 98. <laughs> I mean, that's how quick it happened. Yeah. And so in terms of my introduction to the scene, uh, I met friends rapidly. to go back to 1997 suddenly who let the dogs out starts wafting through your head and you're like <laughs> ricky martin was really big at that point <laughs> yeah, he was yeah, at yeah. the top of the charts you know living la vida loca uh i believe written or at least co-written by uh two members of the of ringo stars roundheads really wild i'm pretty um, sure yeah I'll have to look. That's a deep cut for me. Ringo Starr's <laughs> Roundheads. <laughs> That's the band he was playing with in 97. They were they were having themselves a little hot streak at that moment. Is that pre-All-Star band? Uh, that, that is, is mid-All-Star band. band. Yeah. Mid-stream. It's, it's just, right he was before, taking a break. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> it's right before Vertical Man, if I recall. Yeah, Vertical Man was 97. So he was that was post-anthology, and he was all full of... You know, Beatle memories, and they made some really good records. Again, me and Paul are embarrassing ourselves with how yeah, much sorry, sorry. we've amassed, and I, I apologize. Try. This show does tend to veer in that direction, so I'm sorry. Um, well, I'm, I'm the same way. I've got my own <laughs> musical obsessions, and they I take them, you know, I try not to take them too far in the sense I don't get out and go, you need to hear this record, because <laughs> I just, people aren't ready for that. No. You know, they've been locked down for two years. And <laughs> okay, but their well, kids are going to love it. You've got the, you've got the platform now. What is a record or a, a band even that you would like to evangelize right here and now that you think everybody should be listening to? I mean, I've heard Devo already mentioned. I, I need to know. Oh, I already know. Yeah. Are you a devotee? I am. I love Devo, but that's not the band I want to. I I just want to bring this up. The band I'd like everybody to listen to is a band called Antenna. Yeah. 
E N A. Okay. Uh, wow. I think we're a Belgium band from uh, the early '80s, and Numero Group uh, is putting out a collection of their first recordings, and they're amazing. They sound like you know heavy synths and bossa nova and almost kind of new av. Yeah. It's very cool. Very cool. And that's what I'm into right now, this minute. Okay. Uh, Antenna, Camino del Sol. Listen to it. It's great. I look forward to diving deep into Antenna. And we're going to play a little bit of that right here. So obviously, like getting back to the the train of thought, um, the scene, you know, the scene, you know, everybody seemed to have a, I don't know, a similar point of view in terms of like reverence for music of the you know sixties and seventies and that kind of rock and roll that that real primordial rock and roll. I mean, I would imagine that that bonded, you know, you guys a bunch, you know, whether it be, you know, the Go and whatever, the Doll Rods or the Cobras and the, you know, whoever. I yeah. Mean, was was a lot of time spent sort of like talking about your favorite stuff and covering that, like. Yes. I, Philosophizing I about music. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. how I met most of my friends was talking about records. It wasn't so much a test of the of your character to know the best record or not, but it was a nice in, you know? It was just a nice way to get to know somebody, playing those records, <laughs> other bands that you're about to play shows with. And it moved. Uh, my memory of that time was it just moved at such a fast pace. Any day of the week, you could, whether it be a Tuesday or a Thursday, you could just go, I feel like going to a bar or a club <laughs> to see a band because yeah. you could see, you know, it might not be the the most well-liked band that would get a weekend slot, but it would be an interesting band. And you might see your friends that you would normally see there on the weekend there. And that's how the scene really grew. When I say scene, it was like there was a handful of bands that were playing great music, but it was more about all these people networking and getting together every night of the week with the same goal right. in mind, bring music to the people. <laughs> that was the thing at that point. I'd, that was the thing. Uh, other than that, Detroit had, had nothing going on for it. It was a constant struggle economically. Right. All of our interviews over the past you know, few years of people who have been a part of this music scene uh you know that camaraderie is kind of palpable like you could really kind of see that that is it's it's such an infectious like thing to 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 hear about because i'm like i want to be a part of that like i understand there's a lot of hardship and stuff and it's an escapism but like maybe not everybody's friends but everybody kind of agrees that you know this is a great way to uh escape and have fun and the few clubs that were out there that you could go you you there was always a staple you could cling to the go being one of them. I don't know. It's such an interesting time for music. I'm really interested, like interested in any found footage and stuff that we we get of those those clubs, especially like the ones that Neil Yee put together with when he recorded, you know, bands at the Gold Dollar. And it's something that we've heard time and time again that camaraderie. 
was there any albums that kind of brought you together with with anybody like I, I i hear a lot of like people hear the gories and mc5 are typically bands that people connect over was there any uh connections you've well you, yeah i would say those uh the mc5 and the stooges were sort of detroit's hometown pride of rock and roll it's the brand we are selling to the rest of the world mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where the mc5 i mean jack just said it himself in a recent uh, video clip as a plea to the industry to open more vinyl pressing plant as the mc5 once said you're either part of the problem or part of the solution thank you But Mick was still so active, you know, with the dirt bombs and stuff. I mean, I almost feel like you guys were, and again, this is just me sort of romanticizing it, but almost like troops in the in the trenches. And so even if you yeah. all weren't best buddies, you were all pushing toward a certain goal. You were all shoulder to shoulder. You know, we hear that in early White Stripes interviews, too, where Jack talks about, you know, like, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to bring... You know, I feel like our victory is all of our victories because it at yes. least gets the music out there. And you know, of course, he brought on different um, D- Detroit acts, um, including you guys. I think you guys mm-hmm. played a couple shows with the White. He Street brought us so. on tour in your in the UK. Yeah, for, uh, I think it was during the Elephant tour. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, which, which is, that was fun. Yeah, I can imagine any any Elephant tour stories you want to share with us. Only, uh, you know, it, it was. The crazy thing about it is just us going to the UK. That was crazy all by itself. But yeah, playing in front of two to four thousand people, Edinburgh, Scotland, opening up for the White Stripes and um, Rowan Heat. That's right. Uh, yeah. So it was all three of us, and it was such a weird feeling seeing a sea of red and white. <laughs> out in the crowd, <laughs> you're wearing your regular rock and roll clothes that aren't aren't red and white, they're earth tones and grays and blacks. <laughs> and just Jack's like, in the corner with his arms folded, yeah, disapprovingly shaking his head. Yeah. That part of it was a little nerve wracking, but we managed. We played like uh, we we played like it was, you know, uh, our last show every night. I think we made some fans. In, along that tour, I think we converted some people, but uh, really it was we were in awe because things were moving at a fast pace for Jack. Yeah, the White Stripes exploded in the UK, and uh, every time we took a, a, a the London tube, it was a giant advertisement on the on the tiled wall <laughs> of Jack and Meg. <laughs> That must you know, have been so people we, surreal. People we saw at this stinky bar just a few weeks ago. <laughs> and there's been more interest, I think, in tonight's entertainment than uh, within Radio 1 than in anything else that we've done that I can remember, and we're obviously very pleased about that. And uh, we hope that you're going to enjoy the rest of the programme and uh, the contribution of tonight's live band. I'm very impressed with the with the red trousers there, Jack, very similar to the ones that I wore for the Liverpool-Real Madrid final in Paris all those years ago. Uh, from the studio audience now, thunderous and well-deserved applause for the White Stripes.
That must have been so surreal. Like almost like uh, having your I don't know your high school yearbook photo like plastered on the television or something. Like because you kind of I mean not grew up but musically grew up with these people. You know I did. I did. Yeah. yeah I mean uh, I was uh, nineteen. 18 or 19 when we started playing with when i started playing with bobby and mark seriously yeah. so you know all my adulting that i had to learn like everybody learns around that time was done in the context of being in a band and trying to get on the road trying to rent cars and vans uh that kind of thing that was my uh First lesson in adulthood. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> he didn't try to go for the owning a van uh, approach. Yeah, I, I think right. Co did that. Uh, <laughs> you're at you're at the supermarket picking out groupies. All right, you. Well, what you, the Go did was we uh, ended up our first opportunity to buy a vehicle to tour with. We <laughs> were hasty and bought a diesel fueled shuttle bus from a uh, a defunct shuttle bus from a local hospital in Farmington Hills. And they were, uh, we, we cleaned it out and we pulled up to Dave Buick's house and we were ready to get on the road. And we just wanted to see the look on his face. We didn't tell him uh, what kind of vehicle we were getting. It was a huge bus. And on the back of the bus were the letters Cutlass Supreme. Yeah. <laughs> oh the back God. of the bus was filled with dirt and mud. Um, because the thing, it wasn't meant to go through Wyoming over the hills and through the valleys. It was meant to <laughs> take you to the emergency room from a few blocks away so there was still a patient inside <laughs> desperately <laughs> waiting to get to the hospital <laughs> did the go ever put anything out on on italy we did we put out kind of later in <clears throat> later in the game we put out yeah. a single of you go banging on yes. how long the haunted beat your ride back with uh, mary bell which is a non-lp b-side If I recall, Howl on the Haunted Beat Your Ride was an album you guys wrote on the Elephant Tour, correct? Am I misremembering that? Um, I, you know, I think we started to write some songs. Like, <clears throat> Actually, the I'm trying to think. Was that think- after the self-titled LP that we did the Elephant Tour before? No, I know Bobby had told us that you we're play testing those songs on the road. I don't know if it was during the elephant tour specifically. Okay. But, um, I remember him all the UK that- shows were kind of bundled up in the, mm-hmm. U- in the elephant tour, there, but we did have other business in the UK uh, yeah. with another label trying so, to get sorted out. The there. self-titled was 2003. So that would have, that would have um, coincided with the elephant tour. It would have coincided. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't tell if it was before or after it was right. Probably right there. 
But yeah. um, it was uh, really fun. We enjoyed our time on that tour. Yeah. But that that album, Howl, is my favorite album. It's so wild and cool and psychedelic and fun. Uh, oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, Howl and the Honda Beat You Right was uh, sort of a turning point for the go in the sense that up to that point, we had relied on so many different figures around to help us decide on what we're going to record, where we're going to record it, what kind of engineers and producers we're going to get lined up, what's the vibe we're going for. It ended up, you know, it was just a, it was a hard time for the go because at that point we had not hit our goal, mm-hmm. you know, ambiguous goal. Yeah. But what ended up happening was Bobby took the initiative and in uh, my grandfather's basement. He set up a sort of DIY style recording studio and stayed up all day and all night teaching himself how to use. He already kind of had some education in terms of like four track and stuff like that. Yeah. But he put the pedal to the metal and taught himself how to use uh, compression, uh, different uh, software. And he just threw himself into it and it took two, almost two years to make the record, but we were all so proud of it because we had, it was all us. It was yeah. nobody looking over our shoulder, no pressure to get it done. It was really just, let's just be creative. Let's just be ourselves again. I was a boy with rosebud eyes, leapt through the limitless starless skies. There was a time my mind was wild. Back to the burning feral child. Now and again I remember still. Nowhere man by the windowsill. Rainy outside as I recall. Animal shadows on my wall. You and me, baby, you know. It was getting lost a little bit before that point. Now, can you talk to us a little bit about writing with Bobby? Because, you know, the songs undergo a bit of a transformation at that time, too. The sound really becomes distinct uh, in in the sense that it it changed a little bit. Sorry, one second. (laughs) (laughs) At least someone's musical around here. She's singing songs from Frozen at the top of her lungs. And oh, my cool. Wife, my wife is trying to um, distract her to make a cake, and we're out of eggs. And so oh, I have no. this lovely, lovely note, note here that says, I can't make a cake without eggs. How long? <laughs> How long before you get eggs? How long before I get eggs? <laughs> Which came from? I don't think there's an eggless, I don't think there's an eggless cake. Maybe. No, well... You know, now's the time to experiment. We got to clean out those shelves. 
so the songwriting becomes very distinct and and uh, different than it had sounded before up to that point. What's the writing process like with with Bobby? We got his kind of perspective on this, but what what's your perspective? You know, how's the process go? writing with Bobby versus writing a John Krautner solo write? Like, how do you both initiate? Do you come to each other with ideas and flesh them out? Do you start from whole cloth? How, how does that writing process work? Well, to go back to the chicken and egg thing we were just talking about. <laughs> I guess that's staying. I was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were, when I first started writing songs in the rail-faced wonder wheel with my friend Mark and uh, other friends, uh, it was really just let's just see if we can write a song right. and uh, do covers to prove that we're cool. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Amongst our very small group of friends. <laughs> and um, I wrote a song. I was still living at my mom's. I must've been still in college. I wrote a song called the eggplant song. It was mm. a terrible song. And I wrote one, another one about, a nursery garden, Frank's nursery, which sold plants. And it was just dumb songs, but um, I was getting into uh, records and I wanted to, you know, something inside me was like, okay, now you can write a song with verses and choruses. Good. Now, what do you want to say? And so I started swearing in one of my eggplant, my eggplant song. I swore in it. I forgot what I said. I'm sure it was dumb and embarrassing. (laughs) But um, at some point, this is before I really started talking to Bobby. He had heard it. And he called me kind of out of the blue. He's like, hey, I don't know if you remember. We met once. And I'm like, oh, yeah. How are you? And he's like, I just heard your eggplant song. I really like it. There's like a lot of potential there. And I'm like, oh, thanks. And uh, he goes, have you ever thought about not cursing in your song so much? Wow. <laughs> and, then, uh, and I'm like, oh, and at the, he's older than me. So it didn't, you know, I looked it up to him automatically. Just kind of like, oh, no, I, I only curse because, uh, you know, I, I wanted it to wake somebody up when they, who were listening to it. And, and he goes, you know, um, you can, there's a, there's better ways to get that idea across and smarter ways i would love to work with you on stuff like that and it was yeah it was that was sort of our first conversation that's really like a high level conversation like he's really high level conversation for for some for people that don't know each other very well yeah Yeah. he's already got ideas (laughs) on how to collaborate the minute he calls you and that is very typical, Bobby. He's got he's looking uh, five months ahead mm-hmm. always, and uh, you don't know where you're going to be five months, <laughs> but he knows where you're going to be. <laughs> and they'll be damned if it doesn't work out that way. But wow. um, yeah, then at some point he invited us to Grand Rapids. Mark and I, just Mark and I, we I remember he showed us Pink uh, Sid Barrett's last trip. Mm-hmm. It was this kind of bootleg video of him on mushrooms or acid. I can't. I think it's mushrooms because he's stuffing a bunch of them in his mouth. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and uh, uh, I fell asleep watching it because I didn't know at the time I had my, suffered from mild sleep apnea. <laughs> and I don't get much sleep at night at that point. So I was falling asleep watching this, this movie. And I'm sure that was a weird impression. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't want him to think I wasn't interested in the, the project, you know. Um, 
but uh, we brought the four track up there and recorded a song called Send Me Down Love. kind of a song with harmonies mm -hmm. but we both we all three of us sort of had a moment when we recorded that just for you know giggles and we decided like maybe we should try this you know nothing too serious it wasn't you know but bobby and i started talking about writing songs together and bobby gave me a book it was called Nell Bay's Guitar Chords or something like that. Because <laughs> that, up to that point, I was just kind of messing around on the guitar, writing songs, but I didn't know what kind of uh, rules I was following. I didn't mm. know there was supposed to be any rules, but there are some useful fundamentals that helps you as a songwriter. If you can learn the Beatles chords or the Bob Dylan chords, it's a good start. And you could do a lot with that. And everything I learned about that style of songwriting, where you sort of make an outline and work from there, was from Bobby. Hmm. Once I took his uh, advice on how to build songs, I started creating my own ideas. And in that process, we I think he sort of recognized, okay, now we could both write a song. You know, and from that point, there was never one way that he and I wrote songs. A lot of the time it was he'd write a song or I'd write a song and we'd add our own things to it. For right. the most part, it was like their song. But if you fast forward all the way to an album like Fiesta, our last Go record, we were listening to a bunch of instrumental tracks and we had notebooks. We both had notebooks. Cool. So these were all instrumental tracks, and we both wrote words to almost every song and wow. traded notebooks, checking off things we liked and kind of fused them. It was, it was just a, a new way for us to write together, and so far it was our favorite way. comes across in the music it's a very experimental album in terms of the go material and it's one of my like aside from how fiesta is my 
second favorite go album. Thank you. And it's really good. And it's really out there, like in a in a good way. Um, yeah, it's out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like Beyond the Beyond is my favorite Go song. And oh, man. I find it hard to believe that that had no, that had no lyrics. That was just an instrumental. Yeah, we just, it was an instrumental. All the songs were on Fiesta were instrumentals to begin with. There was no concept of beyond the beyond of anything. It was just an instrumental that we thought would be funny. And (laughs) with the notebooks, we started firing away with words. And sometimes, I don't know, personally, (laughs) there's a lot of things to laugh at in music. A lot. Mm -hmm. And not just words, but music itself, melodies, uh, just the way music floats in a song sure can be very humorous sometimes oh i've heard i've heard a sousaphone in a tuba they're very funny <laughs> <laughs> yes and mark the drummer mark fellas we always had this thing where um if we would hear flutes or a little medieval kind of musical interlude we would just just die laughing for some reason i don't know what it was just musically there's we're all sort of in tune with the same musical sense of humor. But yeah, Beyond the Beyond, the words were written very quickly. And the chorus was something I wanted this because I like Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. Yeah. And I like the way Frankie Valley sings sometimes. He, he has a, because of his, his Bronx accent or Brooklyn, I'm not sure where he's from. Jersey? Is he Jersey? I feel like he's Maybe Jersey. it's, oh yeah, uh, Jersey books. Yeah. He's from Jersey. <laughs> He's got a really high voice. He talks like this. He's from Jersey. And, and so apparently, very good friends with Joe Pesci. Dream lover, where are you? With a love oh so true. And the hand that I can hold. Feel you near as I grow old. Cause I want girl. But the, just the way some of his isms and uh, the things he did musically, I wanted to reproduce for for the go. And began, 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 You know, uh, just sort of make it a kind of nursery rhyme-ish style, kind of a chorus. That's what I was going for for that song. I am never gonna unhear that. Yeah, I think now when I listen to that song, 
I do love that. Also, uh, that's a very, it feels like a very Elvis Costellian way of writing songs is having a huge notebook of funny words and sounds you think would go well in a song and just being like, yeah, let's make this huge notebook into the music. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I love Elvis Costello too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to touch on your voice for a moment, talking about your your New Jersey beyond the beyond. Uh, your vo- your vocals are interesting to me because they range quite a bit. And there's like moments in some of my favorite Go songs like um, Blue Eyes Woman. I really I love that song. It's got a bit of uh, Fogarty almost on it a little bit. Like there's a real <laughs> sort of like grassroots quality to your voice. What? Thank you. You know, have you spent, I mean, I hear that we hear this from a lot of vocalists where they really do spend time trying to find their voice. Can you tell us about how you found your singing voice? It took a long time. Yeah. And I knew I could sing in key, uh-huh. but and that was good enough for a while. But it took, I mean, I think it around Conspiracy of Owls. I mean, I literally took that long, for which is uh, 2009, 10 years, for me to decide. I think I could be, you know, because it really comes down to just being self-conscious. Mm-hmm. I want to do some soulful turns with my voice. I want to reach some uncomfortable notes. Yeah. And to do that, you sort of got to loosen up and sort of drop your your front a little bit and go, you know what? I'm okay with a little bit of humiliation. I'm going <laughs> to go for it. I'm going to sound like Frankie Valley, Jersey. <laughs> Jersey. Uh, I'm going to go for it. So... And ever since then, I feel a lot more comfortable as a singer because uh, I was able to reconcile the the fears. And, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know. It was just, I, maybe I was just getting older. You know, I decided I didn't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it was overcompensation or what, but you guys oozed confidence in that band. So, I mean, it doesn't come across that way that, that you, you didn't have the self-confidence enough to sing at levels you wanted. Because really, like, you, you guys... Sorry, my son is crying. <laughs> we're, we're really just, yeah. we're really having you a time here. get some eggs. I, <laughs> I think he needs a diaper change is what it is. I'm going to Google eggless cake for you guys. Eggless cake. Yeah. And I want you to change one ingredient and I want it to be, then we can label it as John Krautner's recipe <laughs> yeah. for good. eggless cake. And uh, we'll cook it live on air. The Betty Krautner cookbook. <laughs> Betty Krautner. <laughs> I love that. I forget where I was going. Anyway, oh, self, you, you guys were seemed very confident in every video and recording and stuff, especially in like music videos. Like you go banging on, bringing it back to Howl on the Haunted Beat You Ride. I'm sorry, I love that album. Uh, but yeah. the, the the video looks like it was so much fun to shoot. Do you have any recollections from that day? Oh yeah, that was uh, shot in New York City. Uh, was it Brooklyn? Not terribly sure, but uh, Wartella. It's New Jersey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was near New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. And there was a team of people headed by Mike Wartella who did the video, and he did a raconteur's video not too long ago. Mm-hmm. But it was just really fun. It was the first video we ever did. I, I, no, that's not true. Yeah, we no. did a video in the UK, and that was... So it was not, it was not to our like <laughs> way overproduced. And it was just like, eh, I don't know if these guys get us kind of a thing. <laughs> and so it it didn't have a very long shelf life. 
But the Yugo banging on video with all the animations in it, that was interesting for us because the guy directing the video was our buddy. Mm-hmm. And we were already gone through his record collection. <laughs> and we knew he was the right guy. <laughs> and he was just as, you know, as wide-eyed as us in terms of reaching those creative goals. really fun really fun a a little nerve-wracking because videos are just anytime you feel like you've got to do something to (laughs) you know for the industry it's it's always like okay you know but that video was fun i really liked it i wish we had done more that's the front that you were talking about almost personified like that's you presenting image whereas like the act of singing like what you're talking about is to give a piece of yourself to other people like it's communication very pure communication and so it must be kind of surreal to have to then put back on the i am a rock and roll star kind of mask after you've already taken it off and and kind of exposed yourself in that very vulnerable way i mean i look at a song like invisible friends which i I really love and you know when i hear that song it, it really sounds like a personal experience it sounds like an intimate personal experience perhaps with some inspired by some maybe flaky people in the life of the the singer character but you also kind of put a happy-go-lucky spin on it a little bit to not take it too seriously or to kind of let either those people or the singer off the hook Uh, I don't know if I'm off base on that or not, but, you know, do you find yourself working through interpersonal relationships in your songwriting? Sometimes, but that's hard because uh, uh, working your way through life's real problems are so, they require such nuanced solutions that in some ways getting, setting up a song as, let's just say you had a, a revenge song in mind and you want, you know, one of your friends did you wrong and you're like, well, you're getting a revenge song. <laughs> you never gave back that record. So now I've got to write the song. <laughs> and the thought did cross my mind. And, but I think that it's just, some people are better at it, but not me. I'm just not, I mean, t- t- lyrics for me are a means to an end. Mm. I'm more of the guy that's musical melody and the bigger ideas uh, of the context, the landscape of the song. Um, I feel like in terms of the go and lyrics, uh, Bobby's always been, he's a little more well-read than I am. (laughs) So he he could use the the $20 words uh, better than I could. (laughs) But as because Bobby uh, is, I, I feel one of the smarter people I know. He told me that, yeah, I've got a, a list of $20 words I like to throw here and there, but right. uh, if you could be real and, you know, for t- Tower, the song Tower of Diamonds, 
is about the shopping center that I grew up next to. And I have two songs about that shopping center. Wow. <laughs> Which is pretty sad. No, I get it. But, <laughs> I get it. It's We had that it, too growing up. We had the Grand Union. And that's the place where I got to know comic books, wait, waiting for my mom to finish oh. uh, shopping, you know? And so I, I get that. You know, there is a... Yeah, those, these places, they have real important reverberations in our, in our being. likely the most nostalgic person in the go um i'm the guy that's reminiscing about everything i'm the guy that's like uh trying to uh uh get everybody to listen to this really deep record that nobody cares about <laughs> <laughs> well and they don't care to understand it because it really you got to have context to understand it so right. well that context is partly why, like, I, I completely understand that that point, because that context is exactly why me and Paul started this show, is to get context into Detroit music in general and what was going on in the scene. And so, it, yeah, it makes, it makes sense. You, gotta, you, you can wrap your brain around all of the history of a moment and kind of yeah. filter it in. That shopping center sounds great, and I want to visit it. <laughs> it's too late. They, they, uh, they steamrolled over it, and they built a new... They put up a parking lot? They did, but they put up buildings on that parking lot. Oh, no. <laughs> it is terrible looking. It's just like, you know, it's just like anything. They take away the, and I'm sure Jack feels pretty strongly about this too. They take away something beautiful in Detroit and they replace it with uh, something that the aesthetic is yeah. just so wrong. Little Caesars. It's like, I- man, this is like, bad. this is something out of a bad 80s movie. I, I don't know if I'm... <laughs> I don't know if I'm out of place, but Jack feeling strong about something? That sounds... No. Yeah, sound like uh, yeah. I might have been mistaken about that. <laughs> he only wrote a bunch of songs about how the auto industry sucks. It's fine. Yeah, the big um, three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, by the way, that was uh, cool, having a front row seat to all that, developing yeah. Jack's career taking off. And I remember being in uh, this club called Paychecks Lounge in Hamtramck. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a blowout show, but um, they were, Meg, Jack and Meg were just doing their thing, but the crowd this time was singing along. And I had been to a lot of their shows, and I had not seen that yet with any band in Detroit. Right. And so, well, I saw the look on his face was surprise and shock. <laughs> but, he, but it was also a big smile because that was his goal and he met it. 
What, what was the turning point in that? Because I know that the White Stripes were not fully adopted, I guess. Like, people didn't quite understand the gimmick for a while. And then there was a moment that it they did. I mean, I don't want to make this about the, the Stripes, but, you know. It, Why that, not? Was, well, it the, was it the record? Was it the album? You know, Long Gone John and all that? Was it was that the turning point? You know, I think that might have been the turning point for the UK. Oh. Um, because at that point, I think all they had was singles when yeah, I saw yeah. them at the Hamtramck uh, yeah. blowout. And But funny enough, that's all it takes. You know, yeah. Dave Buick pressing up and putting, you know, Jack putting in the hard work to make the singles really special. So... Yeah, it's just another single by another band, but this one's got money in it, French <laughs> money or so. You know, I forgot what he put in there, <laughs> but you know, he made it really special looking, and that makes people want it. just had everything in place for, for that time for him. And I uh, I just remember the feeling I had when I saw the look on his face. I had the same feeling. I'm like, God damn, Jack, nice work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really great to hear. I mean, I, I think what you just expressed there is kind of the mission statement behind Third Man Records just in general. If you make something special that you're excited about, other people will want to participate in it. And the goal is to keep pushing the envelope and pushing it and pushing it. And yeah, you may push it too far sometimes, but so what, you know, like that, that's how, that's how shit gets done, you know? Yeah. Apologize later for it. Right. Right. Yeah. And bring it on back to the go. You guys pushed it with Fiesta, which I'm bringing it back there. Uh, it was the, the last full length studio album by the go. It's, amazing it has such good songs on it uh with you guys exploring kind of solo territory at the at the time um and you know you and bobby both doing that is there any hope for a go reunion or project in the future are we gonna get i mean we kind of got the big release last year of of a lot of previously unreleased material uh, at least not officially released material is there is in terms of bobby's uh yeah. solo album right. yeah yeah his unheard yeah so yeah record. yeah uh is is there any is there any hope of of you guys coming back to 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 play a show uh do anything along those lines well i would say yes okay and i would also say we're all still alive <laughs> yes. we all still like each other it's good and we can all uh still play instruments and sing so all the variables are in place 
and we don't live very far from each other, you know. We all live in the same general area. So yeah. I think if the opportunity presented itself in a very urgent manner, we would <laughs> we would uh, find a way. Well, Paul and I have just done a deep dive into uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and how it means literally nothing. So we will um, pressure them to put the go in there. Yeah. yeah. We're going to tell you guys a story about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, please. Uh, when... I first started the solo album. <laughs> we played a show in Cleveland that we had a day off and we're like, we're going to the rock and roll hall of fame. My friend in the band said, you know, bands get in free at the rock and roll hall of fame. You just got to like show them a CD. And at that point I didn't have or a CD or a record or anything. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but we, we had one video on YouTube <laughs> of one show that we had played up to that point or something like that. <laughs> and, um, uh, we had to bust out the computer to show those people at the Rock and Roll of Fame that we were a band. <laughs> and it was just like something out of Spinal Tap. Yeah. <laughs> Spinal Tap. <laughs> I mean, at- at least it was in the era of, of of YouTube and having a computer available to you. Like, at least you didn't have to wait for dial-up to happen. <laughs> so, oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. Just hold on. The AOL guy is going to say you got mail. It's, it'll get there. Don't worry. Don't worry. I... Well, when you were talking about the hilarity of music earlier, I was thinking about Spinal Tap because you're like, yeah, all these sounds. I was thinking Cups and Cakes was kind of running through my head. And I was thinking like, yeah. It's... But but when even when you listen to those Spinal Tap songs they are done with love genuine love for rock and roll it's just they are very comfortable rolling around in the ridiculousness of it all and embracing the ridiculousness and and poking fun at it and taking the piss out of it a little you know cups and cakes cups and cakes oh what good things mother makes You've got to take tea, won't you take it with me? What a gay time it will be. Cups and cakes, cups and cakes. Please make sure that nothing breaks. The china's so dear and the treacle's so clear. And I'm glad that you are here. Milk and sugar. I like uh, and I, I love Spinal Tap, but I really like the Mighty Wind. Yes, the, the yes. <laughs> everyone. I think everyone so forgets good. about that one. It's got the little red wagon. Ah, oh, um, <laughs> very good. Funnily enough, I learned recently the, that uh, band from Mighty Wind, the core one, the Folksman. Yeah, I think their origin story is in the Spinal Tap sequel which does exist and they're in that opening of that of that sequel and I was like holy shit cuz they have to dress as old guys there they're not quite as old as they are like it's it's like a 10 year difference or something it's bizarre it's very strange <laughs> I mean Harry Shear is a bizarre man so, yeah. yeah wait is there really a, a legit sequel to Spinal Tap So here's the here's not to make this a spinal cast um so <laughs> it's it chronicles their UK tour in the early nineties. And so it is one part concert film. And then they also do little skits, um, that 
so it's not really like the original movie, but it's on YouTube. You can watch it for free. Okay. okay. And they bring Rob Reiner back and he has a great moment where he says, yeah, well, you know, the band didn't really like what I had done with their, with their, with their documentary. Uh, I have had some minor successes since then. Um, I, I made a, I made a film, uh, Kramer versus Kramer versus Godzilla. And <laughs> <laughs> Just fucking the, the Christopher Guest character, uh, he's showing his new rock and roll inventions, and he has a, a capo that he can put on the amplifier. <laughs> I think I didn't see this. It's, wor- it's worth it. It's worth it for the little, little bit there. I don't, I, you know, I like everything Christopher Guest does. I, I think he's great. Yeah. Yeah, Why he isn't he making rock videos for people? That's right. Like, <laughs> legit. He's a legit rocker, that one. Um, so, you know, we, we're talking a lot about the uh, the family, you know, the troops in the trenches, you know, in Detroit in in that time. And, uh, of course, uh, last year, or was it this year? I don't even remember anymore. We lost Rachel Nagy from the Detroit Cobras. Do you have any Cobras memories you'd like to share with us? I know it's a, it's a sad time for that band, but, you know, we... we we're looking to do a, you know, a broader celebration of the Cobras in, in an upcoming episode. And we're wondering if you had any nice memories you'd like to contribute. I have nothing but nice memories of the Detroit Cobras. Uh, I have one particular memory that I think it's come up. I think I've mentioned it before, maybe in an old interview, but Bobby and I went to uh, together to this event in Detroit called the fourth street fair. Mm which would happen every summer in this little section of Detroit on 4th Street. Very tiny little community of, you know, old Detroit hippies putting on a music fest. Yeah. But all the bands, you know, there was like three different stages. One stage was hippies and bongos. Another stage was like eh, blues covers. And then the third stage was garage rock from Detroit, just happening fresh out of the package. Yeah. And like pretty much punk bands for the most part. So uh, Bobby and I, still pretty green, you know, my hair is still growing. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's not long yet. <laughs> <laughs> but we're uh, going over this hill and we see this guy um, uh, who's just wearing jean shorts playing a guitar. <laughs> and he looks like Neil Young, real long hair, Steve Shaw. Uh, the guy that yeah. formed the Detroit right. Cobras. Right. And to look at the Detroit Cobras, they were just something to look at. You know, that they were furiously amazing, but musically yeah. amazing. But to look at them was just like, man, you do not want to get in a scuffle with this band. They look like <laughs> a bunch of bad, you know, just trouble, you know? Right. And Rachel, she just. She had a presence that was just mind-blowing. Her voice, everything about her, her energy.
to be terribly honest, I never really got to know Rachel. Yeah. And part of that is a lot of that's my fault because I was afraid of her. Because she had this presence, which musically made the music amazing, but uh, made insecure people like me a little scared. <laughs> because she was just there and in control and powerful and scary, you know. <laughs> yeah, big, big energy. I mean, just, I think and it's just amazing. I, I was just, you know, I guess it's not so much scared as it is. I can't. I don't even want to talk to her because she'll flick me off like a flea off the boat. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was just one of those things. But it did make me sad because uh, she was so talented yeah. and <clears throat> still doing it, you know, years and years. Just kept it up and kept the fans of the Detroit Cobras happy. But right. yes, very, yeah. very sad. And I've seen a few people go because it's it's just it's difficult it's difficult to put your life aside for music because life happens whether you like it or not right but it's funny you say that about you know feeling intimidated by the cobras because i almost put the go and the detroit cobras on the same kind of level of energy just in my mind obviously i wasn't there at the time so this is all just sort of my supposition based on you know video footage and things i've seen but there was a similar big bigness if if that makes any sense to both of those groups and that's what i love about that scene because you get all these little they're all you're all sort of pushing in the same direction but you're going about it in different ways like the cobras have a bit more i don't know there was a bit more 50s almost on their stuff uh than what the go were doing which had a bit more of that real real like like i said earlier primordial rock and roll you know garage sound and stuff and then you have acts like the doll rods which kind of push in a more new wavy direction almost and then you have acts like the dirt bombs which also have sort of a big thing but they're going for more of a almost a 60s kind of like pop sound or something. I just love all the variety and all the different things. But I have to say, I you know, you know, looking at footage of you guys and looking at footage of the Cobras, there's a similar big, big energy to both of those bands. I would yeah, say Yeah, I mean, we wanted to when we saw them for the first time, we was like, we need to be a part of this. <laughs> yeah. You know? I would say where it differs for me is the go I, I think Ben Blackwell put it really well on the um on the the go vault thing when he wrote about, you know, the band. He he said that the the, the go was a uh, a rock and roll gang of five <laughs> dressed in all black and there's a there's a there's a big level of self-confidence and and stuff that kind of comes off of you guys and and it it's a like Paul said it's a lot of energy and power and stuff but the cobras have an energy of fuck you on stage if you don't like this music i will fucking kill you <laughs> like there's there's that kind of and and even like the doll rods for for you know, their music being less like that, you know, they also have that level of like, we're going to make this music and I'm going to be a little naked and fuck you. Like, <laughs> it's, it's got that kind of level where, whereas the go is more like, we're a gang and we're here and we're going to, we're going to fuck up the venue. We're not going to fuck you up necessarily, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're going to fuck your mic stands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to fuck you up with melody. <laughs> yeah. We're going to fuck you up with har- some sweet harmonies. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that's where that's where I see most of most of the difference there. But I I agree with Paul in that the 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 bigness is there with with both of you guys. And um, yeah, it's 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 tra- It's a tragic loss. Um, she was it's tragic. She was super yeah, talented. yeah. And they made great records. And the, the another great thing about the Cobras and other bands, whereas. Yeah, you mentioned the diversity, and everybody has somewhat of the same goal, but different approaches to meeting that goal. I'd always have questions like, what was that song you played? Oh, that's a record I need to hear? Oh, I'll go hear it. And then you hear the record, you'd be like, whoa, that's a game changer. Now i got to rethink some stuff. (laughs) And that was happening over and over and over again amongst all the bands. Uh, When the go was... uh, we were looking for a bass player this in the very beginning we saw dave buick okay mm-hmm. and we knew we needed him in our band mm-hmm. we didn't know him all that well but he had that thing that we just discussed about the band's that bigness yeah he walked around with the bigness surrounding him like a cloud when we asked him to join the band he said he didn't play any instruments <laughs> you know and, and Bobby was like, "Oh, that's no problem. Look, John will come over. And, John will come over and teach you." <laughs> because really, it really wasn't a problem. We just needed his energy. Yeah. And um, because I, we felt at that time that's what was missing. But then Dave came to our practice space in Sterling Heights, and Dave was already sort of a, a scene stir. I would say, like a very everybody knew who he was. Um, yeah. And he was already putting out records. He had put out Rocket, The uh-huh. Fells, uh, now The White Stripes. came to our practice space <laughs> and so we we're getting to know each other we're just kind of running through some songs um you know those practices were where we wrote meet me at the movies yeah saying stuff like you know you guys have you ever heard of the deviants and they're like no never heard of them and that's just stuff like that i think you'd like the deviants because you guys already sound like them. Mm. 
And I think if you heard them, you might really appreciate it. Yeah. And that kind of thing just happened over and over again. And caused, it was just growth at an right. exponential rate uh, for all the bands. Right. And it wasn't just happening to us. It was happening to everybody. Everybody was learning. I keep bringing it back to that's that's why we do this show is that that's exactly what we're doing is we keep like we, we asked you what band to look at because then we we kind of then appreciate that band. We've been kind of growing our catalog of, of musicians that, you know, don't necessarily get their day in the sun, but we we get giant like we get great sounds out of it. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I really uh, I've, I've been appreciating that kind of musical sharing as well. And uh, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that it was kind of a, a driving force in, in the scene at the time. Um, it was a lot easier to make somebody a mix CD yeah. or uh, just loan them a record. But yeah, how come, how come, you know, I'd hate to change the subject so drastically, but You're fine. I feel like uh, one of the issues we need to take care of musically in the world of consumers is we need to figure out how people can make mixes for each other again with ease yeah it's, james and i do it with youtube yeah we create playlists and and then we uh kind of uh get drunk and watch them <laughs> for a few hours and <laughs> will that youtube playlist play continuously in the order that you set it at yeah well, I don't know. It might stop at a certain point, but yeah, it'll it'll go in order, and that's the only way I've been able to kind of reason to share things because I'm still one of those weird people who doesn't use Spotify. Um, I you and me both. I, so I search out my music and I make very meticulous playlists. Apologies for the folks on the our listeners out there who have heard me talk about this ad nauseum, but I do have a very specific method of which I make playlists, but it's hard to share those unless, like you said, you're burning them to a CD, but nobody's doing that anymore. So yeah, the, you, YouTube's like the only thing, I guess you could make a Spotify playlist. Um, yeah. It's, it, there's, it's, there's a function on there. I hate Spotify just for the, what it does to artists and, and, and everything. And I, it is very convenient though. Uh, so I make the, the moral uh, distinction of I, I purchase I purchase music I really like from the artists I really like. And then I also, I listen to it on Spotify when I, you know, if I'm in the car or whatever, but same uh, here, I, I use uh, Apple music, which is mm-hmm. basically just the same thing, but I just feel like we need to get to a place where, yeah, you know, cause you gotta, ch- I mean, see now we all know that we could exchange YouTube playlist, yeah. but not everybody can. And, um, uh, you know, the dude that has a CD player in the car, they can get a CD mix. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, it's such a tricky thing. That's why I have all equipment available to me to make a mix on any medium possible. Because I still need to express myself to people by showing them my musical interests. Yeah. Well, how about this, Odd for Size? You are welcome to join a, a YouTube playlist uh, creation <laughs> thing. <laughs> <laughs> and we could we could send a link to as many people as we as you want, and we could do a a, a John a John's list uh, of I love of music. I like uh, that. It's I mean we could we could talk about it, uh, but uh, you know it's that's the a great invitation's idea. There, that's um, a great idea, James. Good I would, thinking. I would love to hear it. My partner, who I met um, 
many, 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 many years ago. Still has the mixtapes I made her um, in high school. And that's got to mean something, right? Yeah, it's got to sure. mean something. Yeah. Now, is is there any embarrassment level as to those playlists? Because I my my wife also has a couple of the CDs that I, you know, absolutely. Uh, and and I listen to the lyrics, and I'm like, oh, I meant something by this song. Oh, <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> like, why did I put this terrible blood, sweat, and tears song? I really like this girl. I wanted to call me back. Why is my dingling track one? <laughs> strange, very strange. Now that's, I made a Beatle playlist for my uh, now wife, then not yet girlfriend kind of thing at, yeah. at the start of our relationship. And that the first song on there was out the blue from um, uh, John's mind games album. And that became our, our, the song we danced to at our wedding. So the, the, those things, Oh, that's nice. Yeah. They do have, they, have, they do have resonance. You can't really, I think they're important. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you can't express yourself in words and you've got to do it with somebody else's song. Right. Well, yeah. Speaking of important records, uh, I, we're going to wrap up here in a little bit, but I do want to touch on Fun With Gum, Volume 1, uh, a wonderful, wonderful solo record by you. My favorite track by far is Love Just Ain't Strong Anymore with that mix right of Motown and Bubblegum <laughs> kind of crammed in a rock blender with a bit of spiteful spice on the top. Um, <laughs> sometimes I get the impression you're wielding that bubblegum sound like a axe or something, in the, you know, like a weapon. And other times it sounds like it's a, a love letter uh, to pop rock just outright. I was wondering if you could tell us what your overall mission statement was headed into that project or if you had one. I didn't really have one. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I was always the guy that's sort of waiting around, uh, for Bobby to have a great idea and we execute it and it turns into a go album. Yeah. Uh, but at that time everybody was kind of busy and it was something to do. And I love bubblegum. Always have really, when I say I love bubblegum, I love pop music concentrated, <laughs> you know, in it's in its most concentrated form. I don't know if Fun With Gum is, is a correct comment on bubblegum. I don't know if I think bubblegum is so ambiguous. I mean, Britney Spears is considered bubblegum. A lot of groups, you know, you know, it's just, it's all over the map. Yeah. But this one particular period between 1967 and 1970, where bubblegum was mass marketed as a thing. Mm-hmm. There's a great deal of music that was produced, and and amongst the many, you know, you really got to look through it because a lot of it's crap, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> and unbearable. But you find, you know, it's just like you say, you, all the good stuff. You got to go look for it. 
there's, there's, right? it's not- there's gems in there. Yeah, there's the, like because there's there's the bubble gum that that is you know made by a marketing executive team to sell, but there's also like songs that are using that as a means to get more serious topics and stuff out there, just with a yeah. encased in a pop bubble. <laughs> you know, it's Harry, like Harry Harry Nilsson. Harry Nilsson. Yeah. Did yes. That. Um, Heck yeah, he, and come come put me down as a major harry nielsen fan yeah, yeah. Too. one of my one of my first few musical obsessions we had the privilege of getting to know zach nelson uh, oh yeah his son before he he died recently um which was you know he had uh, he had cancer but he was wait zach nelson yeah oh that's sorry to hear that wow yeah but he he was really gracious with our uh, we do a Beatles show with our dad and um he contributed some beautiful memories of visiting Friar Park when uh, uh when I guess it was in the early 90s and seeing George's recording studio and you know getting to meet Danny and Olivia and it's it's really really beautiful wow yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh the you know we talk about how it being mass marketed bubblegum at that time even in that mass market stuff, there's still some gems like the Archies, for example. Sugar, sugar yeah. Yeah. is yeah. a phenom- like a really great pop song, and it's funny because I hear a song like "I Get a Kick" from Fun with Gum, and that sounds to me like it's like you're hanging out with the Archies in a Mexican restaurant after a dozen margaritas or something. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is that's which not is far great. off. Yeah. <laughs> that's about the vibe, I think. <laughs> get a kick out of hanging with you as a song that reminds me of that sort of vibe and i love uh, latin um music and mariachi style music with uh, these certain kinds of chord progressions that are present in bubblegum music yes. a lot uh another weird fusion of musical well, ideas I, I mean it's got that danceable quality to it and uh an, an ageless or at least there's no I'm, you don't need a level of necessarily musical, maybe emotional sophistication. Like the Smiths, a two-year-old is not going to pick up the Smiths, but a, a my my two-year-old picked up this. Said this is pink and has bubble gum on it. And he, put it <laughs> he put it on and he danced like no tomorrow. And this is this is like two weeks ago before we even. Uh, the, agreed upon this interview. he was he was going nuts to, to this album uh, oh so, that's great yeah uh it was it was really really fun my um, daughter is obsessed with uh olivia jean stuff at the moment because it has that kind of bouncy surf rock quality to it and yeah so kids kids really there's a truth i think jack said that many times there's a truth in in children you know absolutely absolutely <laughs> sure. and uh, listen all the i was um 
as a kid, I was 14 or 15, was my first musical obsession, Frank Zappa. Yeah. Out of all the weirdos I could imagine getting <laughs> their music, it was him. And uh, it was just one of those weird things. You, when you're a kid, right. it, you just can't explain it. It's just yeah. your sponge. And, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to why you like it. It's just it's got a great beat. It's got uh, just the right texture my ears need uh, at that moment in time. Similar to what I was saying with Bubblegum, he was able to make that weirdo music. Like, it's great, but to a beat. Whereas, like, someone like Beefheart, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think a kid is necessarily latching on to first. But Zappa makes more sense to me. That's... Yeah, got, because he's yeah. more methodical in his approach yeah. where Beefheart was like, Just. we need to tape cardboard to these symbols because they're too loud. <laughs> wow. I mean, Zappa is literally in an episode of The Monkees, so we know that he yes. was, he was you know, tuned in to the, the, the sounds of the era. That was Michael Nesmith's special guest. Yeah, I think he dresses up as Ness in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they swap places. And then they Tim sw- Buckley was on the very next episode, I think. Uh, as Mickey Dolan's uh, special guest. Amazing. Uh, a band <laughs> let's not of... go off on a tangent. For that. <laughs> a man, I can tell you about the monkeys all day. I love the monkeys. Yeah. yeah. A band full my of sis- great hats. <laughs> you know, absolutely. My sister, my young, my kid sister, who's five years younger than me, is that's her musical obsession. I yeah. I just found at my mom's house a bunch of her monkeys trading cards, <laughs> all all in plastic sleeves, and I'm like, right. Becky, we should really. <laughs> Hang on to these. They might be worth them. With fun with gum, uh, how did how did you go about building the the band for this record? Because we do notice some familiar Detroit rock staples in in the band for this. You have Go members Steve Noara and Bobby Harlow's, you know, taking part in it as well uh, to a degree. You also have some Detroit Pleasure Society and Magic Jake band members. Uh, how how did you uh, form form this union? Well, Steve and uh, Steve Noara was in the Go in the mm-hmm. early times when. Dave quit at some point. (laughs) David Steve Noir was just always the guy that was made himself available. Mm -hmm. He made himself available. He was always available because he's he's in Rocket Four Fifty Five. He's he's done stuff with the Cobras. He's done yeah. It's crazy. His list of credits is is all over the map. With with yeah, it's because he never says no to anyone. He's a very (laughs) nice. He's a very nice guy. Extremely talented. And uh, as a bass player, uh, he's definitely someone that knows how to groove, no mm-hmm. doubt. Um, so he was an easy one, pardon me. Let's see, Justin Walker, who, uh, we met him when the Go played with uh, his band at the time, Sid Hartha, in Detroit. Mm-hmm. 
and he was he kind of stood out in that band you know just had this kind of weird style of guitar playing and it was Abby and I noticed it and we asked him to play on Fiesta lead guitar along with another lead guitar player Joey Mazzola and uh, I poached him from the go yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like uh, I need to borrow you for my stuff <laughs> but um, that was after Fiesta and then the Ben, the drummer, uh, played in a band, a, like a side band with him called the Haunted Beat Band with uh, Danny Kroha from Dowrods. Yeah, I remember that name from now that you're mentioning That's it. That's right. Yeah. We talked to Danny not long ago, um, and he, he mentioned that, that band. There's a couple of videos on YouTube of that, that band, and we do a long version of Down a Spiral that's on how long the hunter be right but the long version is on the accompanying record called uh tracking the trail of the hunter yes. beat right. and it's like eight minutes nine minutes long have that opportunity to play in a side band for a minute i've been i've been in a handful of side bands it's funny even in the very beginning so we got steve ben justin and me yeah so really it was just kind of we were already buds we just you know and they we had a mutual admiration for each other's musicianship and it wasn't hard to get them to join my band it was uh, really uh, easy to work with. I mean, similar to Conspiracy of Owls, it feels like an extension of the go to degree because of the musicianship that that already kind of shares that yep. that bond. Um, I, I mean, it's obviously very, very different. And Bobby and, behind the but, boards on that record too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, so there's there's a lot of of similarities, and it's a, a something you know. You're not going to be lost if you're listening to the go and then a fun with gum song comes on. No. You know, yeah. Yeah, you'll get it. (laughs) (laughs) We encourage uh, everyone to check Check out out, uh, Fun with Gum Volume 1. It's an excellent, excellent record. And Is there a uh, volume two? Thank you. Uh, You know, I'm still working on music, but can I just offer anybody some advice when they name their record and put a volume one after the title? Don't do it. Really setting yourself up for disaster. <laughs> well, well, you could do, do you could do what the traveling Wilburys did and just put out number three. Yeah, uh, right afterwards, it's, it's fine. Oh, see, there's already a precedent for breaking precedent. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of breaking precedent, uh, John, we're going to go to a lightning round here. 
So these are a bunch of rapid fire questions. We're gonna fire at you before we. Are you down? You game for for a lightning round? I'm down. I do take a lot of prescription medication, so <laughs> bear with me if okay. I'm a little slow. All right. <laughs> lightning round. Here we go. Cue the music. I guess we'll figure out what's gonna go back there. <laughs> In a rock hair battle, who wins for best rock hair, you or Bobby? Uh, me. Wow. Okay. Coming yes. in hot. Coming in hot. All right. I know how to use Aquanet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ben Blackwell recalls a story of when you made him a peanut butter sandwich in your basement. Was the peanut butter chunky or smooth? Uh, smooth. Okay. Whoa, you're a smooth man. Yeah, smooth, smooth man. man. You, you're not drinking. You're not drinking pulp. You don't got pulp in that orange juice, I'm guessing, too, huh? Uh, no, I, I don't mind it, but it's a, yeah. A You're lot smooth. of people don't like it, so. Um, <laughs> I used, uh, I, I heard in the doc, in that aforementioned White Stripes documentary, you describe Jack's uh, early singing voice as a rock and roll Ethel Merman. Uh, did you coin that term? No, I don't think that was me that said that. That wasn't you? I, I, I thought it was you. I could be wrong. It was it was a go member, and yeah. I'm pretty. I, we, oh, it might have been somebody else, but I don't think it was me because <laughs> I, it's been a while since we've watched it. But we did <laughs> think it was you. All right, well, we'll we'll blame Mark for that. Yeah, we'll blame Mark for that. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, best diner in Detroit, and what are you ordering? Ooh, right now I like Farmer Frank's, and I like okay. Farmer Frank's Big Breakfast. Whoa, in Eastern Market. All right, excellent. <laughs> Shout out to Farmer Flanks. <laughs> An answer Hello, we haven't heard yet, so I'm yeah, interested. Yeah. yeah. We usually hear a Coney or whatever. Um, favorite Beatle? Oh, uh, Paul. Hey. Yeah, us too. I like Paul. Me right. and Paul are both named after McCartney, actually. Yeah. So. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, James Paul McCartney is his full name, so it's uh, our dad. So you're... Uh, Kind your of parents had good taste. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Our mom denies that that's why, but our dad insists. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, but Paul Ringo's a close second. Oh, okay. yeah. Yes, yes. Got to pay your dues. Um, uh, falsetto singer, Brian Wilson or Frankie Valley? Oh, uh, well, that's a difficult one because they both are just so good. Um, but I have to go with uh, Frankie Valley. He okay. just wow. is so good at it. You beat you beat out the Bry guy. All right, all right, Fair, well enough. Sorry, Brian Wilson. But all right, all right. Not uh, everybody has to be a genius. To <laughs> uh, did you burn down the gold dollar? Uh, <laughs> a couple times. <laughs> That's the perfect answer. Perfect but really, answer. we didn't burn it down for the roof off the place. There you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. I'm sure they got a pretty penny out of the insurance money. It's um. <laughs> Uh, I was sad to li- see that go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what are you? Well, I mean, we kind of heard this already, but what are you listening to these days? We got an antenna. Anything else? These days, I'm, I'm sort of all over the map, but I really, for the past few years, have been doing deep dives in library and production music, uh, which has a lot of crossover with sound- movie soundtracks and. Um, synthesizer people from France and Italy and uh, you know there's just there's a lot of crossroad but it's mostly instrumental music uh, mm-hmm. made for companies uh, for their commercials or 
theme songs for TV shows. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff, I just, I'm loving it right now. I can't get enough of it. And there's so much to dig through uh, that it just seems, in, in, I'm okay with that kind of insurmountable task. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just digging through the pile yeah. until I fall asleep. You and on you the and internet Brian. all night looking for stuff. <laughs> you and Brian Eno are both out there. May listen to music yeah. for airports and uh, all music for airports would be a good example of of something that's sort of in that family. Yeah, stuff that if you heard it at the Denver airport, you'd go. I think this is coded for something. I don't. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't listened to music for airports in a minute, so I got to go. Go uh, reintroduce myself to that. Uh, our last lightning round question: Bobby Harlow as a producer, tyrant? Uh, <laughs> no. no, as a matter no. of fact, uh, he is. Uh, I find him to be a patient person. He's got a clear vision. Yeah. I feel like this is what makes him a good producer: a clear vision of uh, what he wants to to see, and he meets the artist where they are if i was having a bad day i would say terrible things like what are you doing to my song you're ruining it <laughs> but he had the patience and the wherewithal to kind of know where i was coming from emotionally and say no john we're not ruining i'll tell you what we're doing and i'll explain it in a way that makes you not want to kill me <laughs> well it sounds like from that first conversation you had with him over the phone Things haven't changed all that much yeah. then. He's still uh, offering sound, solid advice. Uh, and probably, I mean, he, he's probably telling everybody to curse a little less. So that's Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bringing it all back to the beginning. John, John, thank you so much. It was an honor and a privilege to talk with you today. We love your music. Uh, we can't wait to hear more of it. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It was really fun. It was, and uh, we'll 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 try and uh, talk and set up a, a thing for you to get a playlist of music out there to folks for you to for you to DJ. So I can't wait. I would love that. That'd be yeah. fun. That's all right. <laughs> all right. Well, you, we have a tradition on this show at the end where we say where we will be looking for a home until next time. So, James, until next episode, I will be looking for a home inside a pack of monkeys trading cards, hugging the ancient gum and having fun with it. <sighs> I was gonna mm, I was gonna do this very similar thing. Ah. I will be I will be looking for a home uh, in that hospital uh, van, <laughs> that diesel hospital van, uh, still waiting to go to the hospital. And, still waiting. Uh, James is still yeah. there. You can still hear him in there. John. Will John, you be where will you home be? Any place? Where will you be looking for a home? I'll be looking uh, for a home in the basement of my favorite restaurant, Farmer Frank's, waiting Woo! for him to throw down a couple sausages to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We'll see you all next time. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. The Third Man Podcast was created, edited, and produced by Paul and James Kaminsky. Our theme song, We're the Third Men, was recorded by the band Radkey, who can be found at radkey.net. To contact the show, visit thirdmenpodcast.com or email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at 
the third men underscore podcast on Instagram, at third men cast on Twitter, and search the third men on Facebook. Thanks to our Patreon patrons, to everyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed, and see you next time. Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on it can be as much or as little as you can swing and all donations are greatly appreciated the last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough but if you would like to help us out that would be amazing all right it's all from me remember you can head to patreon.com slash third men podcast and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already all right everybody i'll see you on the show and i'm wayne kaminsky you are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. He said, if you're not part of the problem. Whoa. What did he say about it? You're not part of the solution. You're not part of the solution. You're part of the problem. Yeah. Although, inversely, if you're not part of the problem. <laughs> no, I mean, but, yeah. I think we were all part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, 